Hello, amazing parents and caretakers, and welcome to the Pumped Up Parenting Podcast. I'm your family empowerment coach, Celia Kibler. I'm a mom of a blended family of five kids. I'm a grandma of nine kids, an author, a teacher, a speaker, and a consultant with over 40 years of training and real-life parenting experience. I'm here to offer you practical, doable tips, strategies, and techniques that will pump up your parenting skills and create peace, love, and laughter throughout your family. In addition, I'll be interviewing some great humans that are on a mission to make your life a better, happier, and healthier life. So let's not waste any time and get started with the next episode of the Pumped Up Parenting Podcast. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, Celia here. Welcome back to the Pumped Up Parenting Podcast. Today I have a wonderful guest that I'm interviewing and I'm talking with. His name is Paul Carvanis and Paul is a seeker. And aside from being a seeker, he is an attorney and a coach, and we just have delightful conversations together. He is also the dad of a three-year-old son, and he has a baby on the way. Yay for babies. We love babies. So, Paul, welcome to the Pumped Up Parenting Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, actually, I want to start right before we get into me. Celia and I were just talking before we hit record, and she told me a story. And I've got to insist that you start this episode with that story. So I, to set the stage, I asked what, uh, what your stance was on swear words on the podcast. Okay, so <laughs> I replied, I don't mind the occasional swear word, but I don't like a lot of them. And then I proceeded to tell Paul about my kids. And like, you know, one thing I forgot to tell you, Paul, is that I somehow told my son's best friend that if he said any cuss words, he couldn't cuss in a row. Meaning like multiple <laughs> cuss words. So this, this probably I told him like, I don't know, 15 years ago. And of course, every time I see him, he cusses in a row, you know, and he comes out with all these words and, and they always give me a grief for that. But I, I've many times in my parenting journey, I have said things that I've lived to regret. And, um, and I feel like on my gravestone, they're just going to list all these things <laughs> that, although, although I, to go totally off topic. Um, my dying wish is that my kids cremate me and put me in an urn that says, now I've really made an ash out of myself. And they're always like, we're not going to do it. And I'm like, you have to do it. You know, it's my dying wish. You have to do it. (laughs) And they have to put in a place of prominence in their home. And of course they're like, we're putting it in the closet. I'm like, Hey, dying wish. You have to do my dying wish. (laughs) So, um, so who knows what will wind up, but um, in answer to your question of cussing, like I don't mind an occasional cuss word. And I was telling you a story about, um, you know, that now my kids are all in their thirties and still to this day, when I cuss, they have to text each other. You won't believe what mom said. And I'm always like, you don't have to text each other. And they're like, oh yeah, we have to text. So, um, I was about to tell you, uh, one story about, um, Kyle in the car. And I have to say the F word, but since it's alive, I'm going to say F word instead of the actual word. So, um, so Kyle was in the car and he was seven years old and I'm driving to teach a class 
And this guy cuts us off and almost hits the car and comes like this close. And I'm like, holy cow, you effing moron. What do you, and I'm just screaming. I probably in a matter of a minute said the F word 30 times. And all of a sudden I look over to Kyle and his mouth is like wide open. (laughs) And I was like, when did you get here? (laughs) It's like, looking at me, I'm like, okay. So all that stuff I just said, don't ever say it. That's really bad. Those are really bad words. (laughs) And he's just in shock. And, um, it sounds yeah, like you is, said a bunch of them in a row too. I did. I said a bunch yeah, of them in a row. I mean, I was a like, few really, there's a lot of effing going on there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was just so funny. And, uh, you know, he of course remembers this. They, I think they remember every cuss word I've ever said to this mm-hmm. guy. But, um, you know, I wasn't one to cuss a lot. And, you know, I, I remember when Lauren was in 10th grade, her English teacher said, um, of all the beautiful words in the English language, why do we have to use the ugly ones? And I always thought that was such a nice thing to say. You know, I, I've never forgotten that. But, you know, I, I tell my kids and I tell other parents that if you do cuss, you know, you give your, permi- your, you give your kids permission to cuss. Whatever you do, you give your kids permission to do. So you can't get mad at them if they cuss because who did they learn it from? You. They didn't come out of the womb cussing, you know. So, um. Yeah, the other story I told was about shut up and how shut up was a cuss word in my house when the kids were growing up. And Kyle came downstairs and said, mommy, Lauren said the S word. And I was like, she didn't. And he's like, yeah, she said the S word. She told me to shut up. And I was like, oh, that S word. Okay, good. Uh, Not good, but let me go talk to her. (laughs) It was that S word and not the other S word. So. it's so funny you talk about how they remember every swear word you said, right? Because there's something about kids learning like what they see, right? They don't learn when we're ready to teach them. They learn when they're ready to learn. And when you do something new and different like that, you better believe that their eyes are on us, right? Exactly. They're, they're watching, yeah. they're listening. And it's why you're always like, you see little kids and they're like, they saw that they did, you know, and they're, they're doing the things that you don't think they notice or you don't think they heard. And that's what comes out of their mouth. Not the stuff you're trying to get them mm-hmm. to learn or hear. They're mm-hmm. picking up what you're trying to get them not to learn and hear. Yeah. They are always on you. Speaking of things that we say that we later regret, I uh, have told my son sometimes when he's like really sort of being a little obstinate, which I swear he gets it from his mother. Uh, not, not, not true, but either way, um, I've told him that I'm running out of patience. And now sometimes when he's like in a mood, he'll just yell at me. I have no patience. And it's both cute and frustrating at the same time. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, um, it's funny what we say to our kids, you know, and what they repeat, um, and uh, I just, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's hard sometimes because what they'll repeat is funny coming out of a child's mouth. Oh, I know. You know, <laughs> so it's like you want to laugh, but if you laugh, then it becomes a game. And then you're going to hear it over and over yeah. and over again because they want you to laugh. 
you know, and then you're like, uh, like I remember um, this little two-year-old in our neighborhood and his mother said MF, you know, mother yeah. F to him at some point in time. And then like that night, he's like, MF this, MF that. And like, there were people over there all laughing and I'm like, oh, it's like the worst thing you can do because now yeah. you got to get him to stop doing the comedy act that he just realized he was able to do. Yeah. So, so tell me about, Paul, why you believe or you desire to be a seeker. Like, what does that mean in your mind? <laughs> it's funny. I'm not sure I actually desire to at all. I think it's actually just what I am. I think it's the label that most accurately describes me, which is I'm constantly looking and thinking and noticing and wondering. And like, I just remember actually a discussion with a colleague a few years back where we were talking about going into work and I was saying, no, man. And like, I'm always... Oh yeah, because he was driving me somewhere. I'm like, no, no, if you turn left here, that light is a little more efficient because it changes more frequently, like whatever. And he's like, what? I'm like, yeah, man, don't you think about these things? He's like, no, like, I'm, I'm always thinking about these things, right? Like looking, okay, like, do we take the right angle or do we, do we cut it off? And, you know, old Pythagorean theorem. And he's like, that must be exhausting. And it's not to me. It's just what I am, what I do. I'm always thinking and learning. It's natural. It comes naturally to you. That's what yeah. you do. Yeah. I, I think a few hundred years ago, I would have been an inventor. You probably would have been. Mm -hmm. Or certainly an uh, uh, um, explorer, you mm. know, just knowing that there's new worlds and new dimensions and things that haven't been discovered yet, you know, and how can you discover them and change them and stuff like that. Um, so let's talk a little bit about you being an attorney you giving birth to your first child and what you realized at that time that you needed to change about your situation and how the direction your life was going in. Well, it actually goes back to something we already started talking about, which is the kids learn when they're ready to learn, right? And they learn most not by being told something, but by being shown something, right? They learn by seeing us. And I have spent a lot of my adult life being miserable. And it's not, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not great. It's not nice. It's not fun to, to be miserable. And so I've made it my life's mission to not be miserable, to be happy. And, and yet it's so easy to be stuck in the comfort and and it's funny, actually, as I say that, I don't think it's the comfort. It's to be stuck in the fear, right? And it's the fear of um, how it often manifests is the fear of not having the comfort. What if I have less money? Will I be able to afford these things? What my life going to be like then? And really, it's like, what will other people say? What does that mean about me? And I realized that if I was... So if, if I actually backtrack a tiny bit, it's like... I was pretty miserable as a young associate. And yet I still had sometimes my evenings and weekends for me to do these other things that filled my soul, right? And I actually had a real issue when I moved in with my partner, because here we are. I just found that so much of my free time disappeared because, you know, 
we would talk and I love to talk with her. Um, but it meant that all of the time that I spent like filling my soul doing these other things, whether it be reading or playing games or painting, like just the things that actually I love to do, I just couldn't do as much of it. And so if I lost like 80% of my free time when I moved in with her, I lost another 90% of my free time as soon as my kid was born. And so it meant that, yes, this is what I've always aimed for. I've always wanted to have a partner, like not just a wife, but someone who's a partner. And I also always wanted to have a kid or kids. And so I was like, okay, great. This is everything. And yet, why am I still so miserable? Um, and, and really, it was because I was doing this job that I just didn't like and knew that I could do more. And I think there was a part of me too that knew that there was no one else to blame but myself. And, and that makes it really hard. You know, I, I think, and I think there are so many people that are in that kind of situation where they have these careers that they've, you know, worked they've gone to school for, they've, you know, worked for, whether it's schooling or trade or whatever, they've gone up the scale of, you know, their job and they've reached, you know, the executive level possibly, or, you know, or gotten to where they want to be, like in case of an attorney or a doctor, and it takes over their life. And <clears throat> very often they are miserable. You know, I remember when my brother, brilliant as he is, um, went to school and my parents were always like, uh, you should be a doctor. You should be a doctor. He went into the air force. He aced the air force exam. He had a choice of doing whatever he wanted to do. And he went into the medical field and he, he never got, he never got his doctorate degree. And, um, my parents were always like, why don't you want to be a doctor? And he said, you know what, honestly, I work with doctors all the time and I never want that lifestyle. And I was like, kudos to you for realizing that. He could have been a doctor easily. He assisted brain surgeons as a technician who should have been like a, a doctor or something, but those world-renowned brain surgeons would have no one else assisting them but my brother because of mm -hmm. his crazy brilliance. And, um, but he saw that, you know, and he recognized he didn't want that. And, and I know, I know plenty of lawyers who, um, they're, they work 80 hours a week or more. And it's all the work's always there. Even with COVID, the work's always there. And I think sometimes they just feel stuck in the road. Well, I've done all this. I'm making this kind of money. How can I change? You know, and it's not even the, you know, the upper profession, the, what do they call them? The professionals, you know, like attorneys and doctors, it's people that have other jobs that they're spending so much time with and they don't know how to get out of it mm -hmm. because they're stuck at sometimes an income level that do I just stop making this money? What, what do I do? I, I want to change, but how do I change? Do you have any advice for that? Because, yeah, and please tell what you decided to do. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I man. have a mouthful, sorry. <laughs> well, it's like, 
you know, conversations are often like roads where you walk down them, you guys know what you're talking about. And then sometimes there's forks. And I feel <laughs> like a lot of times there's forks with me. <laughs> well, this is more than that. It's like, here, I'm just going to drop you in the middle of uh, Times Square and be like, hey, you get to pick any direction you want. Right yeah, now. there you go. <laughs> just, just talk about that. <laughs> the, the thing that comes up for me the most actually was a story I read. I think it was in um, How Will You Measure Your Life by Clayton Christensen. Um, so he was, I mean, former uh, professor of, of business at, at Harvard Business School, and he taught business theory. And so the first the main part of the course was teaching business theory and the back end they applied the business theories to their personal lives the back end of the course it's a fascinating book because it's about that and so you're half learning business you're half learning personal lives and at some point he's talking about the guy who created the farmer's almanac and he said that this was like when he was just starting out he was trying to figure this out and he gets this ad for something like someone wants to advertise with him and he didn't believe in the product and he's like what do I do? And so that night, apparently, he just ate like two pieces of plain bread and went to sleep on his floor. And he woke up the next morning and he's like, you know, that wasn't so bad. I can say no to this. Right. And I find that what happens so much with us is we can't, this idea of having less than what we have is so scary. And in part, it's because Actually, it's for two reasons. One, we like it. I like, look, I love luxury. And I love driving in a luxury car. I love wearing high-end clothing. I love doing this stuff. I don't a lot of the time, but I still love it. And for people like us who have set our sights on something and achieved it, and then we've set our sights on the next goal and we've achieved it, and we're still not finding ourselves happy, there's a real fear in there. There's a fear that we're broken. Because it's like, look, I did all this stuff and I'm not happy. So if I do this, why would I be happy then? Like, isn't it just going to be the same, pardon my language, same shit, different pile? And so there's this real fear that, yeah, I, I could step away, but like, then I'd be giving up the creature comforts I do have now for something that, look, you know, if, if history tells me anything, I'm going to hit that goal and then also not be happy. So, so to tie that in, I guess I realized, first of all, I'm not going to be happy if I stick with the status quo, like something needs to change. And it wasn't until my kid came and it just got so bad that I was like, I have to do it. And a big part of that was me understanding that my job as a parent is twofold. One is to nurture him and to create the space for him to learn and grow. And the other one is to be a role model, right? That's it. It's like yeah, that's to, sh to show the life that I hope that one day he can have. And is that life the guy who sort of hates his work and feels like a martyr every single day when he marches off to his car or to the subway? F that. And that's the example you're giving. You know, it's yeah. like, um, I always tell parents, you know, we start out a lot in, you know, many of my trainings and my book and all that. Now I'll say, go look in the mirror and see what it is about you and your life that you're not happy with. Because when you start having children, that's the time to change. You know, 
because what you're living, the way you're living it is what you're teaching your children. It's like relationships with parents. You know, if you're in a relationship that's toxic and you and your partner are always yelling at each other and screaming at each other, and that's your day-to-day life, your children will grow up thinking that's norm. That's the normal life. That's the normal life of a relationship is you scream and yell at your partner all the time, you know, and they will get into a relationship and they will continue that cycle, you know, and, you know, I love that you brought up how much you love luxury too, because we all do love luxury, you know, luxury is great, but, you know, I always say the greatest things in life are not things at all. And the greatest mm-hmm. things in life are the laughter of a child, you know, the, being able to sit there and play with your child and watch them grow and realize like I do, you know, I, I just spent yesterday at my daughter's house and I watch her and she's 38 years old and watch her parent, her daughter and her son. And, you know, and they're all cuddled up on the, the couch together. Those are the greatest thing mm-hmm. in life. You mm-hmm. know, those are when you look at life and go, well, I didn't do too badly. Look, mm-hmm. look at her, you know, and it's, it's, that's luxury. That, that to me is true luxury. Yes. I love my car and I probably have, you know, a little more luxurious car because I love to drive. And before COVID, I was on the road all the time. So I always felt like, well, I, I need to drive something that I love driving. And, um, you know, and it's, it's really though, the real luxury, the real beauty of life is recognizing that you're happy, you're grateful, and your life itself is beautiful. If you're miserable every day going off to that job or going off to work, where's the happiness? Where's the joy? You're, you know, Mm -hmm. you're giving it away. Where's, where's the hope? There's Mm -hmm. no hope because you're feeling hopeless. Mm -hmm. So I, I love that you mentioned that. It, it's like building off of that. It's, it's funny you say, look in the mirror, right? Because I actually think that our children are a mirror for us. And so like to give you an example, I remember just sitting there and being so annoyed with my boy because he wasn't following the rules. And like, they were pretty reasonable rules and I'd like explain them pretty well. And, and just to set the stage, like, my kid is actually a really reasonable three-year-old. I don't know a ton of kids, but I know enough that he's super reasonable and other people have told me that too. And so I'm sitting here reasoning with him or trying to, and I'm just getting so angry that he's not following the rules here. And it wasn't until a little bit later when I stepped back and realized, oh, it's because this is a rule that I've always effing hated. Yeah, fine. It's reasonable. There's there's explanations for it, but I, I hate it. And so I'm still angry at the fact that I follow this rule. And so seeing that in him and just like looking in him and seeing myself reflected, it's like, wow, I actually wish I could be more like you in this instant. And instead, here I am trying to essentially browbeat you into being more like me, which is is like not good for either of us. See, that's that seeker in you. Good job. Good job. <laughs> I, I love that, Paul, because a lot of people don't see that. And, you know, and and the other thing, you know, with, with a toddler is that, you know, if you, I'll plug my new book. If you get my new book, Raising Happy Toddlers, available now on Amazon. 
Um, the thing you have to remember about toddlers too, and I talk about this all the time in my book, when I do any kind of trainings, when I'm with my clients, is you have to understand their brain and the fact that it is so underdeveloped. The human brain doesn't develop until you're 25 years old. And reason and logic do not even exist in a toddler's brain. They're not even there. So trying to reason with your child and expect him to reason back, trying to get him to like have a logical process to something you're trying to get, it, there, it's not even there. It's not that he's not, you know, not able to do it. It's impossible for him to do it because it doesn't exist in his brain yet. It is up to you to teach him those things, to teach him self-regulation, to teach him reasoning and understanding and stuff like that. And um, so, and that happens all the time with adults. Adults always look at their kids and they want them to respond as if they're an adult. And the fact is that the stuff that we have in a fully developed brain that we're lucky to have if we're over the age of 25, they, they don't even come close to, they, they don't even come close, especially at three. Mm -hmm. I mean, teenagers, you know, they're a little more developed and then they have risk built into their brain and they're wired a certain way at a teenage um, level. Toddlers, they have nothing pretty much but emotion. I mean, if you want to like just kind of focus on what's in their brain, it's emotions. It's why they can go from crying to happy to disappointed to like miserable to like running around happy and crazy and they can float those emotions so quickly because that's what's in their brain. It's our job to get them to figure out how to regulate those emotions and respond productively to those emotions. So, um, you know, but the fact that you got, you took it a step farther and you realized that, gosh, he's actually mirroring me because I hate going by that, you know, that rule. That's, mm -hmm. that's, that shows your huge brain development. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, if, if, uh, you know, we talked about what I would have been centuries ago and I said an inventor and, and in my mind, I was thinking Isaac Newton and he has this saying, if I've seen so far, it's only because I've stood on the shoulders of giants. And um, I certainly think I, I notice a lot of things myself and, but a big part of it is just the support network that I have around, like between my coach and my wife, who's just an amazing mother. Um, yeah, there's like a lot of different examples for me to sort of see what's really going on. And, and my sister is one of the most self-aware people I know. So yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll take some of the credit and share around more of it. But that's important. It's important for everybody. You know, that you hear it so much nowadays, you know, you are the five people you surround yourself with. Mm -hmm. But the truth is who you are with, are they going to become more like you or are you going to become more like them? And having people with the same mindset, the same drive, the same um, goals and beliefs is so important because it keeps you focused to your truths. You mm -hmm. know, when you have people around you that think the opposite, do the opposite, you're, then you're like questioning, well, you know, I could just be sitting around doing nothing like this guy is, mm -hmm. you know, and feeling guilty because I'm not doing anything, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and stuff like that. The, you know, the, um, 
The other thing that came to mind because, you know, I'm ADD and everything comes to mind, as you found out by that one question that I tried to ask you, <laughs> um, keeps, keeps, keeps me the entertainer uh, and keeps myself entertained, um, is like, you know, I was thinking back on what you were saying and the luxury and, and the really finding what you need in yourself. And I was thinking of an expression that drives me nuts. And I don't know how you feel about it, but it's when people say I'm living the dream and like the dream, you think of that as, oh, having tons of money and everything you want and all of this stuff. When I always, if, if someone, if I refer to that expression, I always say I'm living my dream because everybody's dreams are different. And, um, I think it's just so great that you were able to adapt and discover what you really needed to have as your dream, you know, and not just, you yeah. know, follow the course of what people think you should be doing. It's funny you mentioned that because there were two sayings that I heard over and over and over again at the firm. One was living the dream and the other one was it is what it is. Um, it is what it is I have like zero patience for. I hate it because it was used to justify so much unnecessary suffering. And living the dream, honestly, I don't think I've ever heard anyone use it about themselves seriously, like not facetiously. So living the dream was the answer of when like, how are things going? Living the dream. It's like, oh yeah, it's shitty right now. That, that's, that's what that means. Um, I've never heard someone use it the other way, to be honest. I actually have a friend who uses it all the time and he huh. does have money and all of this and, um, and he does use it seriously. And wow. actually when, if I was ever to mention it, my, um, you know, it kind of, you know, upsets my husband because he's, he sees that, you know, as like living the dream, like, a, you know, hmm. But um, I, I just think it's so much more important to live your dream. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, what it, and, and, you know, maybe your dream is to be, you know, a scholar, a doctor, a, you know, maybe your dream is to run a franchise. I, I know somebody who has like 20, I think it's 24 Pizza Hut locations, or it might not be Pizza Hut. Doesn't matter. It's a pizza place. And I think 24, like to run 24 franchises, like I, I would hate that, <laughs> you know, and pizza yet where you're depending on young people who don't always have the best work ethic. I'm like, that would make me crazy. Mm -hmm. But it, that's, that's what he loves. He loves it. He thrives on it, you know? So it's always living your dream, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, and everybody has their own dream. And I think what's wonderful is to really be able to recognize what that dream of yours is. And maybe, you know, it's, you know, I have a friend and um, she is a homesteader and like a budget debt elimination uh, specialist. Actually, she's going to be doing a masterclass for me to teach people what she has. And, um, her, 
her dream was to be debt-free and they paid off $325,000 in four years and $325,000 of debt in four years. And then they built, they found an old house in, uh, in the country. They rebuilt it on themselves. They have bees, they have all this. And now they're actually selling that house because they decided as, as much as that was their dream, their dream changed. And now they have an RV, they wanna take their RV they want to live in that and go on the road. So they're selling this house they worked so hard to create to become even more debt free and just be able to live, you know, freely. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so important to to discover what your dream is um, and be able to fulfill the dream and be able to also give it the power to change if you know, it's like, well, this is not enough of my dream. I want even more dream. I want, I want to be this. I want to be that and allow yourself to change regardless of your age, mm-hmm. you know? And I think people that read stories of like, you know, people that have done amazing things at in the older age of life, they're great story. Like if you ever read the story of Colonel Sanders, great story. I don't know if you've ever read it, but you know, he made his change at 65 years old. You know, you can always live your dream you can always make changes you can always make your life better if you're willing to you know Mm -hmm. and you're able to recognize it Mm -hmm. like you did Mm -hmm. that's funny like even 65 you still got what like i still plan to have another 30 years at least like i want to live till 110 which means another 30 years of productivity it's like i've actually only had like 10 years of a career now which means that once i hit 65 i still have three times more career left than what I've been through now already. So um, yeah, it's it's never too late. The, the other thing that's that seems to be really coming up, especially in that example you gave of the going debt-free, and one of the reasons that I talk about luxury is I discovered the financial independence movement a little while back. So I, I don't know if you're familiar with it. Um, so basically the idea is uh, we all have money, some amount of it. We earn money and our money earns money and our life costs money. At some point, the money that your money earns is enough to pay for your life. And when that happens, you can retire in perpetuity, right? So one of the easiest ways our society focuses so much on that first bucket, how much money do we have? Um, and we focus on it a lot on like the, the downstream indicators, like how nice is your watch? How big is your house? How nice is your car? All of these other things. What, what's your title, right? We focus on these things. And actually, the if you focus instead on how much your life costs, not only is this pile of money that you have going to grow faster because all of a sudden you're saving more, but it also doesn't need to grow as high. Since your life costs less, it doesn't need to support as much. It's like, you know, you build a bridge as strong as it needs to be to carry the load that it's carrying, right? It doesn't need to be, you don't build a a bridge that can handle a million tons if it's only going to be pedestrians and maybe they only ever add up to, you know, tens of thousands of tons. and then, so that's that's the finances of it in a split second. And yet there's a movement around it. And 
part of the reason is because it's so much more because when you actually focus on how much your life costs then you start living a life that is more true to what you actually want like you were saying the best things in life are not things you actually create more space for them to exist there right like if if you had a basketball team and you had to give every player on the team equal playing time right it's not like you can ride your stars for 40 plus minutes a game in the playoffs every player needs to have equal playing time well the team that's going to do the best is probably the one with the least amount of bad players right and so if you can get a team of like five lebrons that's going to do much better than than a you know a 14 person roster and so it's almost like the same thing in our life because we all build a roster of of players in our lives things that we do well there's nothing that says that we need to have 14 hobbies or or focuses or this or that get rid of a bunch of them right um what i found and the reason that i yeah just had this interesting relationship with luxury is i look at it and like i had a lot of fear around earning less money and around and around having a less prestigious position and and i actually took that fear and put it on money and put it on luxury and started to hate both of them right and so i had a conversation with uh, uh some friends recently and one of them said they were talking about if money were a person what would your relationship with that person be like and uh one of my friends said oh my relationship with money would be a booty call because sometimes it's there sometimes it's not and when it is it's always great and I thought about it for a second. I'm like, actually, my relationship money with money is a bit like a broken marriage. Like, we hate each other. We're around all the time. We just hate each other. And, and only lately has that started to shift as I've made peace, made peace with myself and my journey, the fact that I do like luxury, the fact that I'm not going to just, like, go all out to try and hit this financial independence inflection point before I give myself permission to actually live and feel alive. So, yeah, that's a lot there. (laughs) Yeah. But I love relating money to a person. Um, Mm -hmm. I I love that idea. So let me ask you if, if money were a person, what would your relationship with money be like? Um, It would be, probably a person that is uh fun loving and not always reliable um but uh i think still a person of integrity so that you know because i think money itself you know, there's a certain substance there and real realism there. Um, but because I'm not so focused on money, I, I like more fun. I feel like money is complementary to life, mm-hmm. um, which is not always a good thing. And I, I don't do what I can as much to build wealth because I don't focus on it. So I think that's kind of why I just feel like it would be like a fun loving friend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like your favorite neighbor. Yeah. Yeah. You love to chat with them. You love it when they're around, but they're not always. Right. Yeah. They're not always. And, and then I'm like, whatever, I'd like my friend back. <laughs> yeah. Where's my friend when I need him? Yeah. <laughs> but um, 
I, I just love that. So, so listeners, we ask you, if money was a person, what would that person be like? So take some time, write it down, answer it yourself. Mm -hmm. you know, message one of us and tell us what your answer is, if you'd like. I yeah. Great question. I think actually I'll ask my question. I'll ask that question in the group, in my pumped up parenting group on Facebook. So, um, well, I, I just love talking to you, Paul. And I know we could keep talking for hours and then people will be like, gosh, will they ever stop talking? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the answer to that is no. No, I'm just kidding. The answer is yes, we will stop talking. But it doesn't mean you're not going to hear from us again because uh, Paul will be back because I'll make it. So um, anyway, uh, any last words of wisdom for our listeners that either you learned in life or you learned as a dad um, that you think about with a baby on the way? Is there anything you want to throw out there? Because you have so much wisdom and I really love listening to what you have to say. I, I'd say that I've got two ideas which are really linked. And that is that one is that you can do it. Like you, Celia, you listener, you can do it. You can actually um, love your life. You can be the person you want to be. All of this is available to you. Anything, any beliefs you have like, oh, I'm not like this, or I can't do that, or I come from this spot. Like, don't worry about any of that shit. It's all just noise. It doesn't matter. Um, so you can do it. And the, the flip side is you have to do it. Like no one else will do it for you, right? A, a lot of us are waiting for someone else to save us. I feel like it's interesting. I remember talking with my coach about playing the lottery and how I wasn't even hoping for like the $40 million payout. I just wanted a $1 million payout because it would at the time have given me a great excuse to quit my job. Because, but it was interesting that like, what I wanted was not the money, but like an excuse that I could make other people understand that uh, about why I had left. Right. And so I was looking for something else to come in and save me. And, and like nothing will, no person will, your partner won't, your parents won't, no one else will, y you are, and you can. And that is one of the greatest gifts that you can teach your children. I love that message. Yay, Paul, clap, clap, applause. I love that. Um, and it's so true, you know, it's like, and just a funny antidote about the lottery. Don't you find it interesting that people, well, oh, Celia. That, Celia, you just cut out, uh, all I oh, heard was I it's a funny anecdote about the lottery. Oh what no, can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay, so funny antidote about the lottery is, don't you find it amusing that people will only play it when it's like over $15 million and they won't play it when it's like one or $2 million. Like that's not enough money. One or $2 million isn't going to do it for you. Oh my <laughs> <I'm> gosh. Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, anyway. So, so I want to warn you. So I have my own podcast and I think an episode oh, wait, or two ago, uh, leader no, rising, Say leader, two, two words, leader rising, okay. L E A D E R. R-I-S-I-N-G. And uh, it, it's, I mean, 
been exclusively me now for a while. And uh, a week or two ago, I was actually talking about lottery tickets. And so I'm going to warn you that like I geeked out for a full four minutes just by myself, not even with someone else, just talking about lottery tickets. So I totally understand. I'm one of those people. I only buy when it's after a certain amount. Because <laughs> look, if you're going to, let's say you were going to buy a lottery ticket every single week. Wouldn't it make more sense for instead of buying the lottery tickets on the weeks where the jackpot's little to just take that money, put it in a drawer. And then when the jackpot gets bigger, you take all that money and you put it towards the lottery on that day, right? Because your, your expected value, like the stat, uh, a statistics measure, is going to be bigger on those days. You're not any more likely to win, but right. you're, you're much more likely, if you do win, to win bigger. And so anyway, yeah, I could totally geek out. I, I think that... <laughs> you, you, I love where our conversations go. Yeah. So there you have lottery advice, listeners, in case you were thinking of buying a ticket. <laughs> yeah, I'll give I'll give advice. Uh, figure out what the amount is that really makes a difference for you. If it's two million, great. So when the jackpot gets up to ten million, go in with five other friends, right? Because then all of a sudden you're each putting in your money. You make it way more likely that you're actually going to win an amount that's life changing. Right. If you're trying to hit a grand slam, great. It just needs to make it out of the stadium. It doesn't need to make it into the next state. So. And there you have it, guys. We'll close our podcast with our lottery advice for listeners. Uh, <laughs> so just call one of us if you're ready to pull your money and get a lottery ticket. Um, okay, Paul, before we leave, we know your, uh, your podcast is Leader Rising and the Leader Rising podcast, available on various podcast networks, I'm assuming. Yep. And um, also, if someone wants to reach out to you, are there other ways to reach out? Absolutely. So leaderrising.com is my website. A few weeks ago, I issued myself a challenge to just write something small every single weekday. And, and I've been keeping up with it. And I actually think it's valuable stuff worth reading. So you'll find that on there, plus the weekly podcast, plus um, uh, if you want to receive it in email, it's leaderrising.com slash email. And uh, if you want to actually reach out to me, then you can just hit reply to any one of those emails. I read every response I get. And Sounds awesome. I tell you, the man is full of wisdom. You should reach out. You should follow him. We just have enjoyed our time so much. Um, talking together and we, we could go on and on, really. We could really go on and on. Um, so I think take this advice at hand. Guys, if you haven't heard, my book is out, Raising Happy Toddlers, uh, subtitle, How to Become, How to Build Great Parenting Skills and Stop Yelling at Your Kids. It's on Amazon. It's an already hit number one. So grab your copy today. And uh, just read the comments because the comments and the reviews from people will tell you how much you should grab this book and have it on your bookshelf. So not to toot my own horn, but toot toot, here's my horn and I'm tooting it. So it's really good. It's a really good book and it's funny and it's got good stuff. And you know, it's like a manual. You all want the manual? <clears throat> I gave you one. Okay. Well, I want to thank Paul for being here with me today. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. And look in the description of the podcast. I will have all his links to connect with him. And uh, Paul, thank you very much. I appreciate you, being here. And as always, guys, I wish your days 
are filled with peace, love, tons of laughter. It really is the best medicine. And we'll see you here next time on the Pumped Up Parenting Podcast. Bye, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to the Pumped Up Parenting Podcast. I hope you found some great advice and some interesting topics that really make your day and help to make your family the best it can be. Be sure to head over to PumpedUpParenting.com to grab your free copy of the Patience Playbook and get more patience and more joy in your life and in your family's life. Tune in next time for more tips, advice, and strategies as you continue to pump up your parenting and create childhoods that all of you can blossom from. Bye-bye.